Hi everyone, our second reading is from Mark chapter 3, uh, verses 7 to 35. If you're looking on one of these pew Bibles, it is page 992. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a, lou- and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions around the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him, to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Jesus went up on a mountainside, and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the names Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, No one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven, for he is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, He has an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent in someone to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my my mother and brothers? he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Good evening, uh, everybody. Uh, I don't know all of you, but my name's Andrew. I'm one of the other ministers. Just excuse me while I move this. And excuse me if um, I have to cough. Uh, I have had some kind of child-acquired bug uh, that uh, is, 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 is gone, but it's left me with a little bit of a throat thing. Uh, let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you most of all for your son, Jesus, and we ask that you would be with us this evening and show him to us again afresh and change us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Who wasted half their Tuesday 
looking at election updates. Anybody? A few of us. Okay. In the past week, um, we've seen visionary leadership on display, haven't we? Uh, once again, we had to look to America to see it, of course. Uh, there's not a whole lot around in Australia. But whatever you think of Romney and Obama, whatever you think of them, uh, they both, being Americans, know how to make a speech. Obama's rhetoric, of course, is not what it was four years ago, and it's definitely not what it was eight years ago. But it can still inspire, can't it? Whatever you think of him. He's a visionary leader, and people will follow him, some of them, at great cost to themselves. Of course, visionary leadership is nothing new. Uh, There's a great story, it's probably apocryphal, but who cares, uh, of a soldier in Napoleon's army who was wounded on the battlefield and is being operated on. And as the the surgeon cuts into his chest, makes an incision, there's no anaesthetic, so he's awake, he says, if you go much further, doctor, you'll come to the emperor. I love that story. His heart, that is, going into his heart. There's something in us, isn't there, that responds to visionary leadership. Leadership that inspires hope and loyalty. There's something about some kinds of leadership that can inspire our love and devotion. Now, there's no doubt that Jesus of Nazareth was a remarkable visionary leader. In the part of Mark's Gospel we're looking at this evening, chapter 3, Uh, verses 7 to 35, which would be great to have open before you, by the way. We'll be referring to it, So, Mark chapter 3. Jesus' ministry crosses a threshold where it suddenly becomes a large-scale public movement. And it gives us an insight into the remarkable leader that Jesus was. We'll see first how Jesus was calm and clear about his vision under pressure. Second, we'll see how he was courageous and resolute in the face of difficult opposition. And third, we'll we'll see how he showed costly personal investment in his followers. But of course, these things, the idea that Jesus is a visionary leader, they, they raise questions for us as well, don't they? Because as we all know, visionary leadership can also be pretty dangerous. People can be inspired in bad directions. Leaders can disappoint or worse, manipulate or take advantage of people. For the sake of a cause, people can be led to do terrible things. Visionary leaders can be megalomaniacs, tyrants or just delusional. Precisely because it can be so powerful, visionary leadership can also be Wicked. Are these dangers true of Jesus' leadership? Well, as we'll also see, there are actually those who suggested they were. That that's what Jesus was like. So how can we know that Jesus is not the kind of leader we'll come to regret having trusted? Well, come with me as we look at Mark chapter 3 and we'll see. I hope. First, the first thing we see in our passage is the way that Jesus is calm under pressure and clear about his vision. What Mark describes in verses 7 and 8, if you're looking at it there, is a mass movement. We've got to get a sense of this, right? This is a lot of people travelling long distances. When he mentions, he mentions all the different places. Some of them, Tyre, 60 kilometres away. Sidon, 80. Jerusalem, 130 kilometres. 
And that's as the crow flies. So we're talking about people taking very, you know, journeys that would have taken several days on foot. Jesus had become a major public figure. And the pressure is so intense that the crowds begin to get dangerous. They need to get Jesus a boat to sit in at a distance so that he can avoid being crushed, like in an English football match in the bad old days. People are pushing forward to touch him because his healings have become so well known. But not just the crowds. Jesus is under constant pressure because of his work expelling evil spirits. Mark tells us that whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. People are falling upon him. The demons are falling before him. The hype surrounding Jesus is getting out of control. But amidst all this, Jesus is clear about his mission. And in the face of this pressure, which, which really would have been intense pressure, he does something unexpected. He removes himself. He goes up on a mountain and he calls to him a small group of followers, 12, who he makes apostles. That is, people who are sent out. Verses 13 and following. You've got to admire Jesus' calm and clarity of vision here, I think. There's a powerful contrast between the crowds throwing themselves on him and Jesus' choice of those whom he wanted. Jesus remains in control of his movement. This is a moment of leadership where he refuses to let other people's agendas dominate him and stays calm and focused on his mission. Now, what's Jesus doing by choosing this group of 12? Well, their their purpose, we're told, is twofold. It's to be with Jesus, to be with him, and to have authority to drive out demons. Uh, And also to preach, sorry, threefold. To, to be with him, send them out to preach, and to have authority to drive out demons. Their role, I think, is to extend Jesus' work of preaching the kingdom and expelling the forces of evil. The fact that there are 12 of them as well is highly significant, uh, because, of course, as our first Bible reading, a bit random, but I just I liked it, and it's a list of the 12 tribes of Israel. Right? Israel had 12 tribes, each named after a single founder. And nobody at the time would have missed this symbol of Jesus choosing 12 followers. What he's doing is symbolically laying the foundations of a new community, a new Israel, that corresponds to and shares in his mission. Like every great leader, you see, Jesus holds out to us the promise of being a part of something bigger, of finding our identity By being a part of something. That's what Jesus offered the twelve, to be a part of something, to have their names remembered for being a part of a great project. That's what he offers us too, to find our identity by being a part of his mission, the kingdom of God. The twelve apostles were just ordinary folks like us. Their names were as bog standard as ours, John, Andrew, Thomas, James, son of Alpheus. It could have just as well have been Steve Beatty, Christy Randall, Jamie Dallimore. And this is a real attraction, isn't it? Because the issue of identity is a really powerful one. You see, it's not just the question of who am I. It's the question of 
What does my life mean? What does it count for? What does it add up to? Why does it matter? And that's why it's very hard to find a clear and satisfying sense of your identity just by being an individual, by just trying to kind of express yourself in an authentic way. This is what we all try to do, of course. It's the bread and butter of our world. Uh, It's the reason we try to turn ourselves and our Facebook timelines into interesting and unique collages of interests and likes and pursuits and pictures. Right? We're trying to secure our identity by expressing ourselves. The, the interesting, hidden, individual core of our identity. You know what I mean? That sense? But there's a problem. What if there's not actually some stable inner core that gives me my identity? What if I'm more like an onion, where there's layers and layers, and layers, and layers, and then no onion. You know what I mean? See, the problem we can end up with if if we're always looking into ourselves and thinking about who we are and what's right for us to discover our identity is that we end up with nothing real or solid at all. I'm so constantly shifting and moving about that after a while there's no real me left. That's why the promise of being a part of something is so powerful because what it holds out to us is the hope of finding our identity not within but without in something solid and beautiful that we can have a share in and Jesus holds out to us that promise the promise of finding ourselves by being a part of the greatest thing ever the kingdom of God but there's a danger with this as well isn't there Because the problem with finding your identity through being a part of something is that you can get lost, or worse, you can get used. How do we know that when you give yourself to the cause or for the community, you won't actually give yourself and just disappear? Lots of leaders have used people and lost people like this, absorbed them as part of their big agenda, chewed them up and spat them out. As they plough ahead, how do we know Jesus won't do that? It's one thing for the apostles to have their names recorded, but they're the apostles for goodness sake. What about the normal people, the other disciples, people like you and me? How can I know that I won't be lost or worse, used in Jesus' mission? That's an important question actually. I think there is an answer, but I want to just hold on for a second before we notice, well, we notice some other things about Jesus' leadership. So, first thing, he's calm under pressure. Second thing we see in this passage about Jesus' leadership is the way he's firm in the face of painful and difficult opposition. I don't think we can overestimate how full-on the opposition he faces in verses 20 to 22 is. He returns to Capernaum, his home base in Galilee, And he's confronted with his family coming and trying to physically seize him while telling everybody that he's gone mad. Can you imagine how embarrassing and humiliating that must have been? And and this is in a culture where family and respect for parents is so much more important. Jesus' family shame him here. 
They try to coerce him out of the public eye. He's gone mad, they say. I've no doubt that Jesus had had a very good relationship with his family. There's lots of other moments in the Gospels where it's clear that he had a close relationship with his mother. What an awful moment this must have been. But then it gets worse. He's faced with a second assault. The teachers of the law from Jerusalem, they had come a long way and they would have been seen, I think, as heavyweights. Uh, An analogy, if you can imagine professors from Harvard and Oxford turning up to debate a local school teacher at the Bathurst Town Hall. It kind of would have been an intimidating moment. People would have been listening to what they have to say and not surprisingly, they just write Jesus off without hardly a thought. But they do it in a way which is designed to cut the legs out from under him, to sow seeds of doubt amongst his followers, to undermine what he's doing. They don't deny he's doing impressive things, but they say it's an evil power he's doing them by. It's by Beelzebub, which seems to have been another name for Satan. It's the kind of really nasty attack that really clever people are capable of. You've got to admire, I think, though, the courage and resolve Jesus shows in responding. He gives them this logical kind of takedown of their argument, verses 23 to 26. And it basically runs along the lines that if what he's doing is the devil work, then the devil's fighting himself and he's done for. But then he also adds in verse 27, have a look at it there, he adds this other little parable. He says, but in fact... No one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. And what Jesus is doing there is explaining what he thinks he's actually doing in relation to Satan. The strong man represents the devil. And what he's saying is that what he's doing in his exorcisms and his work is like tying up the devil and robbing him of his possessions. Now, it's a bit mysterious, but it's pretty amazing as well. He says what he's doing is winning a victory over evil. Now, there's a big difference between the Bible's worldview and our own, which we don't have time to go into properly, but we need to just notice at this point. The difference has to do with the way we think about evil. We don't talk a lot about the devil or Satan these days. Maybe you do. Maybe we should talk about that if you do, but most of us don't. Um, And that's because on the whole, we tend to think of evil primarily from a kind of human perspective, right? As what damages and degrades human life. And so we mostly speak of evil in impersonal terms. We, we, We talk about things like misfortune and tragedy. And when people do terrible things, it's really interesting to notice how we we tend to focus not on their responsibility, but on the circumstances that made it happen. Their lack of education, their poverty, and so on. The Bible's view of evil, though, and Jesus' view of evil was quite different. Evil is first and foremost that which wrongs God, not people. And so evil is fundamentally a personal thing for which people can be held responsible. And also for this reason, the Bible sees there as being a great personal enemy of God, the Satan. 
who is in some sense the ruler of evil, even though he's just a creature. He's not another god. Now, that's hardly even a beginning to get into that issue. I want you to think about it further. Uh, But I do want to just say that I think that difference lies behind a whole lot of the problems we have when we read the Bible. For now, though, let's just notice the effect that Jesus' courage and resolve and clarity in the face of opposition has here. What Jesus does is hold out to us the promise of something really significant, something worth struggling for, suffering for. That's what we want from a leader, isn't it? A cause that matters, something that is worth our energies and efforts, worth giving our life for. We want this, don't we? Because we're surrounded by causes that call for our attention, agendas that we're urged to get on board. And yet it's so hard to work out what is really worth our efforts or whether at the end of the day anything is worth our efforts. So many good causes turn out to be mistaken. So many grand projects turn out to be blunders. It's been a funny thing for me to see people who, when I was at uni, were passionate zealots, whether for socialist alternative or the Liberal Party or whatever, actually not the Liberal Party, but, or whatever, and, and they're now managers or accountants or bureaucrats. And it's just their causes just kind of fizzled. And yet we yearn, don't we? We yearn for the opportunity to give ourselves to something significant, something that does count for something. But what? Jesus gives us something worth struggling for, his victory over evil. What he says in verses 28 and 29 uh, it actually magnifies this point, his, his talk about the sin against the Holy Spirit. His point here, by the way, uh, is, is not at all that there's some secret magical thing that you can get wrong and if you do, you're stuffed. Okay? His point is not that. It's that what he is doing, what he is bringing in by the power of the Holy Spirit, which as we already saw in Mark, anointed him for his work at baptism, what he's doing is the thing that is of ultimate significance, that decides the fate of the world. And so what side of it you're on is the question to end all questions. What he says here, he says, as a grim warning to people who have declared that his work is the product of an evil spirit. See that in verse 30? He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. That's the kind of thing he's saying, that if that's your final decision... It will seal your fate forever. Jesus' project, friends, is not a cause that might or might not interest us. Everything is at stake. But again, don't we need to be careful with this kind of dramatic extremist leadership? Because this too could be dangerous, couldn't it? But how do we know that Jesus' courage and conviction here are not actually foolishness or worse manipulation how do we know that this won't be yet another grand project that leaves us high and dry having suffered much and given much all for nothing or more darkly how do we know how do we know that this is not just spin 
After all, could things really be this extreme? This is the kind of visionary leadership that can inspire, yes, but how do we know it's not deluded or worse? Now, these again are critical questions, but let's hold on to them for one more moment. Third thing we see in our passage is Jesus' total personal investment in his, in his people. Uh, we already noted that the opposition from his family must have been painful. So this last moment must have been dreadful. His family are outside and they want to take him away. They just want to stop. Okay? They just want to stop the embarrassment to them and to him. They can't believe how big his head has got. But Jesus uses the moment to make this profound symbolic gesture. Verse 33, who are my mother and my brothers, he asks. And then he looks around at those seated there and he says, here, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. I don't think Jesus could have done anything more powerful to show his commitment to his followers. There's a great bit in the West Wing, Series 7. Some of you have seen the West Wing, I'm sure. uh, Where Congressman Santos, who interestingly was modelled on President Obama before he was president. Did you know that? Anyway, that's cool, I think. Santos is trying to win Democratic nomination. And he's out of money. So he sells his house to keep the campaign going. It's this great moment of personal commitment. Jesus has done much more than that. He's put his new community first, ahead even of his beloved family. And by doing this, friends, I think what he holds out to us is the promise of a community which transcends every community we know. A fellowship of incredible dignity and love and happiness. To be called a brother or a sister or even a mother. Of Jesus. What, what, what an incredibly beautiful possibility. And yet that is also potentially dangerous, isn't it? Because is Jesus setting our hopes too high? Is this just pure idealism that can only disappoint? Is it fanciful? Honestly? How could a group of strangers ever come to share the kind of love and support that a family at its best can? Or is it even something worse? Do we need to be suspicious of Jesus here? Because, after all, this is the kind of thing a cult leader could say. This is the kind of move that can be designed to control people, to pull them out of other relationships so that you can manipulate them. How do we know Jesus is not doing that? I hope we can see a little more clearly now why Jesus was accused of the things he was accused of, of being mad at best and possibly something much worse. Many visionary leaders are one or both of these things. I can understand in a way why people saw Jesus as delusional, mistaken, an idealist or even a manipulator, a wolf in sheep's clothing. That's his phrase, but you know what I mean. He was a visionary leader, you see, and visionary leaders are dangerous. What do you think, though? From what we've seen this evening and what we've seen in Mark, what, what do you think? Was he mad? 
Was he bad? Or was he just maybe the real deal? Before you answer, though, in your head, we, did, we need to just see one more thing, which is where his leadership heads. Um, there are two crucial details in the passage that we missed out on the way through, but that I want to go back to now. First, there's the fact that Jesus silences the demons. And second, there's the fact that one of the people he chooses is Judas. First, he silences the demons. Although it's not obvious at first, it's important that we see that the demons' declarations, when they say, you are the Son of God, they represent a temptation for Jesus. Why? Well, if Jesus brought everything out into the open at this point, if, if he just let the demons speak, if he declared his hand, he could have done anything. He had the crowds in the palm of his hand. He had all the manpower and influence he needed to build an army, to build an empire, to take control. He could have done anything with this power if he'd made himself known as Messiah. Anything except what he wanted to do, which is to be the kind of Messiah who dies in weakness and humiliation. That's why he orders the demons to be silent, as we've seen him do before in Mark, because their declarations of his identity, they are in a way, an attempt to hijack his mission by making him into a different kind of Messiah. It's exactly the same temptation the other Gospels record Satan presenting Jesus. But Jesus resists the temptation because his intention is to go to the cross. Second, he chooses Judas. Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, Mark, of course, is writing this after the fact. He knows the end of the story, how Judas found an opportunity to expose Jesus to arrest and ultimately murder. We don't know exactly how much Jesus knew at this point. But if the rest of the gospel is anything to go by, he knew enough. He knew he wasn't choosing followers, a team who would never let him down. He knew he wasn't choosing people who would be faithful to the end. He knew who Judas was. And he still chose him. And so chose his own death. And later on, when it became even clearer, when he looked Judas in the eye and saw his plan, he didn't try to escape. He said, what you're about to do, do quickly. That is how we know the kind of leader Jesus is at the core. This is how we know that he is never going to use us. That he is not out to manipulate us or deceive us. And that his commitment to us is nothing but genuine. Because from the beginning his intention was to go to the cross. To give himself up to death for our sake. For the kingdom. That's how he planned to tie up the strong man and plunder his house. Not by sheer force, but by giving himself up to death so that we and others might be free. 
That's how he planned to be the son of God. So Jesus was not evil. The accusation of the scribes cannot stand in the face of the cross. But what about mad? What about our questions along these lines? Even if he did want to go to the cross, couldn't Jesus still have been deluded? Personally, I find it hard to see it in the text. He just doesn't look mad. But of course, that's not conclusive, is it? Plenty of mad visionaries have seemed perfectly reasonable. Now, the answer to this accusation can only be found at the very end of the gospel, which we'll get to at Easter time, when his followers go to his tomb to care for his body, and it's not there. When you see Jesus raised from the dead, that's when you know for certain that he was not out of his mind. And then you know for certain as well that he can deliver on what he promises. He can deliver on his promise to secure our identity. In Revelation chapter 2, there is this amazing moment when Jesus says that to the one who conquers, it's a beautiful image, he says, I will give a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. It's a bit weird, but it's a beautiful image. You see, friends, Jesus will never lose you in his project. He will know your name and it will never disappear. And he can be trusted as well when he says that his mission is something worth struggling for, worth expending your life in the service of. And he can be taken at his word when he promises to give us the richest experience of community and fellowship with him than we can hope for. Even though it seems unrealistic and demands sometimes very costly sacrifices. Because God himself has stamped his seal on this visionary leader by raising him forever from the dead. So, friends, brothers and sisters... Let me finish by saying Jesus is the leader who holds out for us everything a great leader should and much more and who will never in all eternity let us down. And so let me urge you to get on board, to get behind him, to put your hand to the plough and not look back Take a moment to see, yes, he is worth following. I'm going to go for it. That's where I'm going to find myself. That's who I want to be. With him. After him. With him as my leader. Take a moment. Make a decision. Give yourself to him. He will not let you down. Let me pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you as the great leader, the one we've been waiting for, the one 
beyond our wildest dreams. We praise you for your calm and clarity of focus. We praise you for your courage and resolve under fire. And we praise you for your costly commitment to us and all your followers. And we thank you that you promise us an identity and that you will not let our name disappear. We thank you that you promise us a life struggling for something worthwhile. And we thank you that you promise us an incredible blessing in being part of your family. And Lord, we want to give ourselves to you in service and commit ourselves to serving you because we know that you who died and rose from the dead will never let us down. And we pray these things and give ourselves to you in your name. Amen.